You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Welcome to Decidedly. Today we're talking with Ryan Goulart from Think to Perform. He hosts the Think to Perform podcast, Making the Ideal Real and the co-author of Leveraging Your Financial Intelligence at the Intersection of Money, Health, and Happiness with Doug Linick, our friend who we talked to a while back on the podcast. Ryan and Doug work together at Think to Perform, providing great insight and value in executive coaching that focuses on alignment, fulfillment of values, and decision-making really right up our alley. Um, I, I have implemented personally, and I know Sean has too, as a professional in our capacity as financial advisors, a lot of the teachings from Think to Perform. So it was a real treat to be able to talk with Ryan and, and learn a little bit more about how they have come to their conclusions on on different ideas and get some helpful tips on how to implement those ideas towards a journey to improving our own consciousness, our self-awareness, and our alignment in life. So there's a lot that we talk about. We really get into decision-making and implementing the four R's. We'll talk about that in the podcast. Um, I want to give you a little bit of background so it makes sense because all three of us, you know, we kind of get into a rut speaking our own language and forget that not everybody else um, has has gone through the same work that we have. But the four R's is a component of the behavioral financial advisor designation that Think to Perform provides and teaches. And the four R's speak specifically to recognizing, reflecting, reframing, and responding. So those are the steps that we would go through anytime we're at a point of high emotion. An event happens to us, something occurs, and we've got to make a decision. Um, I hope that you learned something from our conversation today. Without waiting too much longer, let's get into it. Originally, you got a degree in, in neuroscience. Is that what Sanger was telling me? Yeah, that's correct. So how did you how did you go from a degree in neuroscience to working for uh, executive consulting and leadership consulting firm? Uh, interesting story. Uh, one that I guess I'll start with. Um, my mom is a social worker, and okay. you know, throughout my my family life, it was always I had always an interest in science and I had always an interest in people and how people do why people do what they do and as I was going through school uh, at Stonehill College which is a small liberal arts school south of Boston I started to find I just followed my curiosity really I had a curious I have a curious mind I was really interested in learning more about science I was interested in learning more about psychology and the two blended together to what became a neuroscience degree. And thankfully, Stonehill College is one of the one of the few schools that actually does have a degree in neuroscience. And as I was graduating, uh, my now wife uh, lives here in Minnesota, and uh, she was thinking, uh, you know what, it would be a good idea for her to move to back home to Minneapolis, and. Uh, that's what I did too. So <laughs> I'm from a Connecticut originally. And um, okay. when I, uh, when I first started to look for work, it was one of those things that um, I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. 
I, I had a neuroscience degree. I'm coming out of college. And uh, a lot of my peers went to graduate school. They went to uh, further their education on the science side. And I'm a people person. I didn't want to be stuck in a lab and learning about cells, which are which fascinate me, but not to the point where I want my cells to be my friends. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I went to interview around and found my way talking to Doug uh, because my wife is his youngest daughter. And I was wondering, I was like, well, he's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I'm not sure. But this has always been a passion of mine. I've always been kind of fascinated by decision-making. And so we started a conversation and he eventually said, you know what, you should come learn, work with us. And thankfully I had a choice. I was able to choose between another job or working with my now (laughs) father-in-law. And, uh, you know, I chose this and I've been here ever since. Makes it tough for them to fire you, you know. Exactly. Did you you start working (laughs) with Little job security. Did you start working with them before you were married? Yeah, so I was the boyfriend. that's such a risk. Oh, I rolled the dice. (laughs) That is rolling the dice. Yeah. You got to be so confident. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it was was one of those things that... um, I didn't really think of much of it at the time, but now I look back and it's like, wow, right. <laughs> well done. <laughs> if things go south where they go, they go south hard. Oh, they go really fast. <laughs> yeah. That's a, a, a high, uh, high reward, high risk. <laughs> right to, that's right. There. That's right. Yeah. Well, you, you guys ended up uh, writing a book together, leveraging financial intelligence. Uh, yeah. So when, when did that, yeah. We uh, did. yeah. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that. The story behind that book is that obviously here at, at Think to Perform, we are constantly trying to answer two questions. I'm sure your listeners will hear those two questions from Doug's podcast as well. But the two questions are, why do people do what they do? And the second question is, is it possible for one to be who they'd ideally like to be more often? So the answer to the first, first question is a little bit more problematic, and that's where we bring in neuroscience, psychology, and in some cases, behavioral finance to help us answer the question of why do people do what they do? The second question, is it possible for one to be who they'd ideally like to be more often? The answer is yes, but it also implies that we're not ideal all of the time. And in going out and looking at that, uh, uh, the research on what happiness looks like and who is happy and why are they happy? We started to unpack a, a lot of different things and a lot of different stories from individuals that were managing both, both sides of the equation when it came to money, when it came to their health, and when it came to uh, happiness. Because those that were able to find satisfaction, find happiness, living their values and the, the connections they've made to those values that's really what the story of, of leveraging your financial intelligence is all about. What did, what did you guys find was a good definition of happiness? Is it self-reported? Is it what whether people identify with being happy? Is it something more than that? The thing to perform answer would be that when you are aligned, you're happy. So when you get to align your values with your goals and your goals with your behavior, you're able to achieve happiness. Now in our research for the book, there were a lot of competing different uh, definitions that were out there. Obviously, there are conversations around, and this is where, because of the money side of the conversation that we were setting out to make 
uh, with the book is that those individuals that were operating with salaries in the ranges around seventy-five dollars to $80,000 were able to meet their basic needs and mm -hmm. therefore started to achieve happiness uh, when it came to uh, life fulfillment. So their wellness, their, their, their uh, stress level, their, all of those different things started to impact uh, how they defined happiness. Sure, I've, I've, um, I couldn't quote the study, but I'm sure this is familiar to both of y'all. I've heard that somewhere in the range of about $120,000 a year in income, after that, as your income increases, there's no measurable impact on happiness. Was that something that you guys found out to be true? There's definitely a lot of different stories and a lot of different data points that kind of speak to that. It's just the, but what's interesting is, is that I think there's also a perception that those that have money don't have problems. And yeah. people, as you both know, that have money have very different problems than those that might not. And it's just a different way to look at things. But the common denominator, which we found throughout the, the conversations that we had uh, was stress and how people manage stress and how do you understand stress and where is it coming from? And there's a lot of different stories there, whether it's from someone who uh, learned a certain behavior from their parents and replicated that in their own family and to their own spending behavior, to all of these different things that uh, impacted how they viewed money and the behavior that was associated with it. So when it comes to the 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 work that you guys have done with the behavioral financial advisor designation a lot of the things that you're saying as far as aligning your values goals and actions it sounds familiar to sean and it sounds familiar to me because we implement those things as we've learned them through getting that designation and all of the work that you guys have done what have have you seen on your side as one of the biggest impacts of that work because i'm only seeing my you know anecdotal evidence yeah, and I think it's a good question. And I think for your listeners, as they are hearing this, there's a, there's a times at times as many people do, you get sucked into your own language. So I'll break it down a little bit to help people understand what, what we're talking about here. And what we're talking about here are understanding three areas of your life. You're understanding your ideal self, which is basically understanding your values. And your values have are those things that on your best day, you're going to be living those. Mine happen to be integrity, family, health, achievement, and excellence. So on Ryan's best day, those are the values that I'm gonna be living. Then there's their personal and your professional, and in your case, financial goals that align to those values. So if I'm, today was the second day since the pandemic started that I actually went to the gym. And uh, full disclosure, it was, a rude awakening to living my value of health. <laughs> I, I just, it was just like the habits weren't there. It just sure. like all of, I had to like re re like learn some of the workouts I used to do and then had to dial back the weight, which felt, and you see all these like big men walking around the, the gym and I, where their like arms are bigger than their legs. And I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, this is such an interesting thing. But those are those, those are, it was a goal of mine to get back to the gym. And it was a goal of mine to want to get that habit back into life. And that's on the behavioral side. So I have to get on, on our third frame, the real self, I need to be 
on my best day, I need to live my values consistent with my goals and align my behavior, which is my reality uh, to my goals and my values. So I, I was happy to be able to get to do that today. And there are, there are a lot of different uh, studies and research out there that suggest that you start to make those healthy choices and it creates a cascade. So you don't go for the burger, you, went, you go for the salad. Uh, and just to you know manage your health a little better, and that's that's part of what made uh, leveraging your financial intelligence at the intersection of money, health, and happiness so important. Because you, we all get those choices every day, and we all they they become so automatic. So when we think mm -hmm. about uh, automatic decisions that we had to learn, I mean, you look at driving, for example. I mean that that skill of driving now is so automatic we don't even have to think about it it's just such a once we get in the car you put the seatbelt on you know how to turn left and turn right but if you start to like reflect back on who you were as you were learning to drive a a regular car a mini cooper would have felt like a boat it's just like yeah. it was such a different experience to I, I remember i was driving with my mom and she was trying to teach me how to drive I don't know why it was a bad selection to drive with my mom because it was, <laughs> I don't know if I wanted to learn from her, but, <laughs> but my, I remember being so close to the mailboxes and she was like freaking out, but that was like, it was a learned behavior and you started to learn. So it's, there's such a, the, that's half the reason why I have a, a neuroscience degree yeah. is because I'm just fascinated by behavior. And you know, it's interesting. Those it's such an automatic. You talk about driving, and, and there is a. Uh, I was reading something the other day, and they were talking about that very issue. And they had an experiment where they asked people to simulate changing lanes. You know, just just the simplest of of uh, driving maneuvers. And so, if you're in one lane, uh, you're in the left lane. You want to go the right. Right. So people would turn their hands to the right, and then they turn their hands to the left which is actually not what you do. You turn your hands to the light, you turn back to the left, and then you turn to the right again to, to correct. And, and nobody got that right. And yet it's the simplest thing we do. So it's so automatic that it's disconnected from our, <laughs> our cognitive even. So Sanger and I, when we do our financial work for clients, one of the things we do, one of the very first things we do is go through a values exercise to un help people understand uh, their values, just like you articulated yours, mine are, integrity, creativity, uh, achievement, relationships, and excellence. And so I use those to reflect on the things that I'm doing because I want to be aligned. I want to you know, have my values aligned with my goals and my behavior aligned with, with those. So what, what have you found as people are studying sort of making the, the values, tying their values to decision-making what have you guys learned in your work about how to best do that, how to best reflect on those values and bring those values forward? Because a lot of times people will do them. And then, you know, if we ask them what their values are, they can't repeat them. And so yeah. it's unlikely that something that you can't even repeat is impacting decision-making in any way. Right. Mm -hmm. So what, what well, have you guys found in that, in that area? It's, it's a, it's a great question. And I think there are a couple of, thoughts that come to mind. One is, gets back to the uh, automatic responses that we have. I'm sure you, both of you have had guests come on uh, to this podcast and talk extensively about psychological biases, heuristics, and framing effects. And those things that we innately have that impact 
our decision making. And I think there's a, when it comes to those items, and it's, it's, it's something that we all, all have, we all operate with these different things. And getting back to the driving example, Sean, it, it, there are even studies out there that we're all so overconfident to our driving ability that we all just rated ourselves so much better than, than, uh, than we think. I mean, I mean, then we actually are. So right. there are most people, people raise themselves as better than average drivers, which can't oh, absolutely be right. <laughs> yeah. And it's, um, but what's really interesting when it comes to aligning values to, to behavior and decision-making, I think you're absolutely right. It takes awareness and it takes awareness of your values to be able to guide that. The other thing that comes into play is the self-talk of individuals. So when it comes to not only do you have to commit those values to memory, but when when you need them, when you're making a decision, you need to be able to, to call on them when you when when you need them most. And that sometimes doesn't happen because of our self-talk. Self-talk traditionally and has been researched to be that 75 to 80 percent of our self-talk is negative. So if you start to or if you're talking poorly to yourself, the odds are of you stepping back from that moment and asking yourself, Ryan, reflect on your values, is the, the probability of that happening is very low. So you, there are things that we have to be able to, to take into account. And one of them, because it's just so ubiquitous in our lives, especially now in a pandemic, is that we need to be aware of our stress levels. And it's not, it's not to be uh, aware to the point where we're trying to eliminate stress because eliminating stress is something that is is nearly impossible and there are also studies out there that suggest that if you are not in a if you're not operating in a at least somewhat stressed uh environment your performance is going to go down so you don't want to be wait say that again so there are there are studies out there that when it comes to uh performing at your best Mm -hmm. you there needs to be a certain level of good stress that's called eustress when in your body because their uh cortisol the stress hormone uh is its makeup is very similar to that of adrenaline and adrenaline is very commonly known if you are experiencing a car accident or you're running from a bear adrenaline's going to kick in and it's going to just seep into your body and it's going to commit resources to all of your mm -hmm. the important organs and let you go similarly with stress stress is a slower burn so with cortisol it actually is a, a like a slight drip and the more that you have the different your body is going to perform at so as you it's similar to working out so as you stress your body your body's going to respond to that stress and allow you to uh, bulk up or or slim down depending on on wh which way you're going sure. but as you get to that level of where you have too much stress that's where it starts to impact your performance and you want to come to come back you have to dial it back and maybe there are certain activities from a renewal perspective to bring your, yourself back to uh, a stress level that is more appropriate to your work environment so the i've heard of the you stress before I've read a very little bit about it, but I still don't understand what the fundamental difference between good stress and bad stress. How can we identify that? I mean, I think most people understand what bad stress feels like, mm -hmm. but what does good stress feel like? 
it's been equated to be like that sensation when you are working and you're in that flow mind state. So it's your things are coming so naturally to you that you're you have a certain level of performance. Your body is alert, which is the a factor of of that particular system mm-hmm. of wanting to be alert. You don't want to be so relaxed that uh, there are issues with you even trying to engage with you don't want to be what, flippant what 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 would flip it no i'm saying you don't want to be flippant no no right. definitely not yeah okay. yeah that makes sense. so it's just making sure that and that's where when focus comes into play and focus is one of those things that again similar to stress where uh, we all don't want to we it's impossible to to uh, eliminate stress it's also impossible to eliminate distraction so I think there is definitely uh, information out there that would suggest that we all have to be focused all of the time. And that's impossible. So Dan Goldman, who wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence, and has had numerous books uh, soon after that one that was released in the late 90s, he wrote a book about, about focus. And in his book, he talks about how important it is to use your awareness to guide your focus. And what he means by that is, is that it's not trying to be focused all of the time, but it's bringing yourself back to focus when you are distracted. So it's a way to kind of shift the mindset a bit on attention because I I mean, we live in a world where distractions are everywhere and we live in an attention economy where people are constantly grabbing at, grasping at us. So how do we bring our attention back uh, is really a critical component to also performing at your best as well. So there's got to be, if I'm understanding you correctly, there's got to be, in order for us to maximize our individual performance, there's got to be some level of good stress present in our bodies. Otherwise, we're not going to reach the, the, the fulfillment of our potential, right? That makes sense. Um, whether it's physically, mentally, if I'm not focused to the ultimate degree to which I can be focused, I'm not going to perform. If I don't care, I'm going through the motions, I'm not going to nail it. But other than simply saying focus more, what can we do to implement that or to improve our focus? Yeah, and there's a lot of things that when it comes to how we distract ourselves. I mean, we are our own Mm -hmm. biggest distraction. We have thoughts that come in and those thoughts influence us emotionally and cause us to uh, do something different. And we could all right now play right here in this very moment, an exercise where we could all think about a moment that made us angry and that Mm -hmm. anger would be felt it doesn't matter if that moment that we're thinking about was last year, two seconds ago, or 10 years ago, we'll still feel emotion, that emotion. And that brain, that the, our mechanisms in our memory to help uh, that help us when in a positive situation, when, like when we think about something that we're grateful for, also distract us in the moments of, of being focused. So ways to, to help us are, are a couple of ways. One, we want to increase the mental capacity for us to process what we're thinking about. And the way we can do that 
And uh, if you could see my desk right now, it would be covered with paper because I'm an avid note taker. Okay. So, and even when I'm taking notes, sometimes when I find myself, I'm feeling distracted, I will write down the thought I have. Doesn't matter how good or bad it is. It's just a way to get it out of my head. Because if I can get it out of my head, I'm going to free up more capacity to help me focus on the task I'm doing. The other component of that is also to acknowledge and identify the emotion that we're experiencing. So if we can label it, if we're if I'm understanding that it's not anger that I'm feeling, but it's more frustration or I'm feeling ostracized or excluded. I mean, those are going Being to be really precise with the emotion. Exactly. It's a, it's which, a, which is tough to do sometimes. I mean, it's oh, difficult. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it actually, again, a lot of the techniques that we talk about, whether it's values reflection or labeling an emotion takes a certain level of awareness. So the question would then be, how do I become more aware? And it takes practice and it takes time. But the best way we can do that, especially when we're first starting off on this journey of awareness, is to write it down, play the exercise, understand the freeze exercise, which is a which is what am I thinking right mm -hmm. now? How am I feeling emotionally right now? And what am I doing? If I can answer those three questions, and again, avid note taker, writing it down will help you see it in real life. Because once you see it in real life, it's not stuck up here. It's not stuck in your brain or your mind as you're ruminating about the thought. You might, it, it just is gonna spin and spin and spin. And for you to break the cycle, you have to get it out of your head. And the best way to process it is through pen and paper, which you can then see it in, in a different world. And you might realize that it's not as big of a deal as you originally thought. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure who said it, but somebody um, said this that stuck with me, which is that to write is to think. So uh, to be a good writer is to only be a good thinker. Mm -hmm. And um, not necessarily that the thoughts are good, but to be an articulate thinker. And I agree so much with what you're saying, to be more precise with my understanding of my emotions is going to help me be more aware, but to write them down is probably the most effective way to articulate that thought. Uh, one thing that I've found is in, in everybody's experiences, that moment where we say, I just can't put it into words. I'm thinking I have this, I want to share this feeling or this thought with you, but I just can't, uh, I can't really think of the right words. Oh, well, th there's a lot of work to do then on my end to, <laughs> to actually think that through. If I can't put it into words, then it's, it's not because I don't know words. It's not because I haven't been talking for my whole life. Uh, it's because I haven't fully articulated the thought. Yeah. And, and emotions have, have that effect on us, especially if they're high energy, positive or negative emotions. So things like anger or excitement or exuberance or fear, those types of emotions at that level uh, on either side of the equation are, are, gonna, are going to have a really big impact on how we perceive things and process things. So back to your point, Sanger, if you can get those out of your head and, and see it for what it is, I mean, it's going to, it's going to change. It's going to change the input. It's going to change how you are able to communicate with 
what you're trying to articulate. And that's what we do here at Think to Perform. We, we build people from the inside out just to try to make sure that as we are better managers of ourselves, we'll have that opportunity to influence and lead others more effectively. Well, I, th I think that's key. When you start talking about looking at, at, at influencing others, I think it's difficult to do that effectively if you're not in touch with what true emotions you are experiencing. Uh, what you're having, you can't help somebody work through their emotional uh, experience if you're not good at, at self-evaluating your own. And, you know, if you can recognize that you're in a period of high or low emotional state, you have to have the knowledge to recognize that that's where the, it is the most difficult to make effective decisions. You know, if you're really angry, you're you're likely not going to make a real thoughtful decision. Like, you, or if you're scared, you're not going to make a real thoughtful decision. And so, it's it's important to be able to to reference these values to be in touch with what your emotions are. Uh, Doug talked a little bit about four R's, which which is kind of something to go through as you're reflecting on those or, or thinking about what emotional state you're in. Uh, talk a little bit about that. The four R's are uh, a great defense against biases. So, and I say it that way, or, or even just defensive traps or our, our decision-making traps rather, because they allow us to not only take a snapshot in time of our emotional state using those three questions. What am I feeling right now? What am I thinking right now? And how am I, what am I doing right now? Taking that snapshot in time of what we're feeling and then allow us to process it, process that emotional experience through the lens of our values and through the lens of potential bias and through the lens of where we want to be in the future, our goals. And if we can do that effectively and to assess that this decision I'm about to make, this emotional state I'm in, doesn't or does align with those values and goals and uh, decision-making traps of biases like anchoring, overconfidence, status quo, loss aversion. I mean, there's we don't need to have that library at play, but what we do need to know uh, are the are there things right now that we're experiencing that we might be making an assumption on? And if we are, we'll want to identify that. And that's part of reflect. That R, the second step in the four R's is such a critical one because it sets up the best R in my opinion of reframe. Reframe allows us to be able to shift our mindset. And it is such an important step because it allows us to change the, change the decision. So if we're saying that this emotional state that I'm in is the wrong decision or, or not the most optimal uh, emotional state for me to be in right now to make this decision, and these are my values of integrity, family, excellence, health, and achievement, and I might be making some assumptions about what, what the data is saying, I'm going to make a different choice. I'm going to change my mind. So if I can change my mind, I'm going to be making a better choice. And it, it, there's so many different app applications for this, whether your listeners are uh, in a leadership position, whether they are individual contributors, 
whether they are at home uh, helping their grandkids. It's an important decision because if we can operate with those with that mindset of helping put it into practice, I mean, we're only going to be that much better at influencing others, which can help us live in alignment more. So reframing, yeah, I agree, Ryan. I think it's the best R. It's also the, it, it's undercover the most difficult. Oh, absolutely. It seems like it's the easiest one. Oh, just reframe it. Just just make this problem into something else. It, it almost sounds like, a, I'm just going to pretend like I'm not pissed off and I'm actually thrilled that this you know, bad thing happened to me or wh- whatever it is. To reframe almost seems like it's just as easy as saying. See, this bad thing is a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's like the you know the the Jocko Willink everything bad is good idea. Uh, anything you break, you're like good. Now you get to bench press more, right? <laughs> it's like that's that sounds so simple and silly, but without contemplative thought and without adhering to the first two steps, without recognizing and reflecting adequately i'm never going to reframe successfully and and what i noticed about myself anyway is i get to that position where, where i where i have to reframe or i have the opportunity to reframe and even if i haven't if i haven't arrived at that moment in a healthy way then i just discount it i got hot bullshit I'm not gonna mm-hmm. reframe right now well and it's one of those it's it's such a important point to make that in reframing context matters. So one of the things that uh, you alluded to Sanger is that one of the, especially that's drilled into us at an early age uh, is failure. And how do you reframe failure? There's so many different stories out there. You can go outside, go to a library, go to Amazon, pick a book. And some book is going to tell you about how the founder of a company overcame failure. And that's just a reframing exercise. Yeah. And it takes a tremendous amount of energy to do that. And it shouldn't go unnoticed. Because what, uh, back to our biases, those biases are there for a reason. And they're there because it is less energetic from a complete biochemistry point of view. It is less energetic to go through the bias network than it is to actually think logically, think cognitively. It takes a tremendous amount of energy for our brain to engage our prefrontal cortex, which is why we relegate a lot of our decision-making to our habits. And those are the habits that have worked for us. And it's, it's gotten to us where we are today. We are only, we've developed those habits and they've been so successful for us that we lean on them constantly. And what will happen is that we'll apply those habits in situations that might not be uh, appropriate and we'll experience some form of failure. And it's how do we reframe it, take the knowledge out of failure that we can and respond in a way that's consistent with who we want to be. And I think it's that other R, the respond R, that also it's because it's involved in, involved in action and because it's involved in doing something, it's sometimes overlooked. But the key part of it is that 
with who I want to be with mm -hmm. consistent with my values. So if I'm experiencing a bad day, I'm going to want to take an, I don't want to just spin it. I don't want to spin it to something that's, uh, Joe, yeah, Ryan, you know, this, but it's over now you get to have a, a different day. It doesn't take into a full account our, of what occurred. So if we can take into a full account of what occurred and but respond in a way that one of my values is integrity. So I want to honor my own experience, be empathetic for myself and then respond in the way that's most consistent with me. And that would be trying to take into account the bad day, understand what happened and learn from it, then completely be dismiss the experience as bad. Sure. The, the idea of falling back on our habits being easier is I think that it's a lot easier to understand when you think about it in a, a physical way, right? They, I, I think conceptually, most people would agree at, at first glance on that first, upon first hearing that statement. Oh yeah, it's easier to fall on our habits because we've all had bad habits uh, that we fall back on. You know, I used to bite my nails, try to stop biting my nails and I end up biting my nails again, whatever it is. Um, I was, I've been training for triathlon recently and I'm working up to doing a full length Ironman later this year. And so I've been trying to listen to a lot of the, you know, really successful athletes in that sport. And there's this guy named Lionel Sanders, who's from Canada, done a lot of, you know, I think he's, he won a Ironman world championships a couple of years ago. Uh, he's really good, but he's got a lot of uh, content on YouTube. And I was watching this video of him and his early morning bike ride on the stationary bike was only like an hour. And they were talking about that, like, Hey man, you're, not just training for an Ironman, you're training to win an Ironman. How are you only going to work out for an hour? He goes, you know why a lot of these people focus on distance? A lot of athletes focus on distance. You know, they go ride a hundred miles or they go run 20 miles, whatever it is. They focus on distance instead of a tempo workout, you know, where you're focused on getting your heart rate high and then getting it back low again and then getting it back high again. They do that. They focus on distance, he said, because it's easy. And at first I heard that. I was like, no, it's not. It's true. way harder. It's, to, true. <laughs> it's way harder to ride a hundred miles than it is to <clears throat> ride your bike for an hour. But it's not because you know how to ride a bike, right? If you've been riding your bike, you know how to ride a bike and you just fall on that habit for six hours. And it's a lot easier to, to habitually ride your bike for six hours than it is to change yeah. And Tem that, tempo that, runs are way harder than long yeah, stuff. <laughs> way harder you know it's a shorter amount of time but it's 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 not just physically harder it's mentally harder too you know i'll go do a tempo run or a tempo ride on the bike and it's oftentimes the hardest part is to just think about when i'm gonna change gears not even actually changing gears just go okay, so it's been five minutes and I've got to do three minutes of hard effort every 10 minutes. So that means I've got to do, uh, and I just drive myself crazy thinking about it. So that totally makes sense that to, to, to avoid those habits requires a great deal of mental energy. I, th I think conserving the mental energy is, is, is key. You know, if you've ever been in a, you know, you, you go to those conferences and, you know, things like that, and I'll come back in a, and I'm just exhausted at the end of the day. And, you know, somebody said, well, you know, you were just, you know, you're just sitting there. Like, yeah. But, if, you know, if you're engaged, your brain consumes so much energy when you're concentrating. 
I think these heuristics or these rules of thumb are, are put in place by nature to, to give us that break and conserve energy. So if I can fall on my habits and go, oh, that's the way it is, and this is this, and you know, this is the way we always did it, so this is the way we'll do it, or uh, create these biases, it, it's there in our self-defense to conserve energy. So, but the risk is leaning on them too much and not doing that critical thinking so that you're not having a good decision-making framework in some time. But it's hard it's to recognize same, when, when the best time to do one or the other is. For the same reason stereotypes exist, right? We have stereotypes for whole genders and, and whole races of people because it's a lot, evolutionarily, it's a lot easier for us to just make a quick judgment than to assess someone completely and totally as an individual because there's too yeah, many of them. Harder. There's too yeah, many people. Harder. And we recognize that as a society, all stereotypes are bad. Uh, you know, behavioral cognitive biases are just stereotypes of thoughts. Mm -hmm. There's a, a, up here in the Midwest, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm from Connecticut. So uh, here in Minneapolis, the first question I got, I don't know if it's same, the same is true in Texas for you guys, but the, when I first got here, people, one are like, you don't look like you're from here. Uh, I'm Italian. <laughs> I'm, I'm Italian and Portuguese. So which is like, not a combo here in, you know, Nordic land, where people are more Scandinavian yeah. than they are not. <laughs> but yeah. um, the second, the second comment I would get was would be, uh, what high school did you go to? Yeah. And, and it's a weird, weird, I would yeah. never have thought to ask that question because no, then they can pigeonhole you you got it and <laughs> yeah. it's a, and then it's also it's a way to anchor again again back to a bias it's a way to anchor you and understand what type of person you are based on the other people they know yeah. so right. if i said i was from uh, edina people would understand what that meant versus someone from uh woodbury or champlin park so right. it's it's such a and because I wasn't able to answer that question, people didn't know how to relate. They, to they had a tough time dealing. It was the yeah. same reason we we asked people. So what do you do, right? Because if you tell me you're, you know, a banker, then okay, I have a, a I can compartmentalize that. If you tell me you're uh, electrician, I can compartmentalize that. You, you know, you tell me you're an astronaut, I can compartmentalize that. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I have this framework of what I think about you. Uh, you know, this, this image that I, that I come up with this backstory that I immediately come up with that helps me uh, sort of figure you out, I guess. Right. But we, we do that. So it's, it's tough to figure out people uh, who, who are retired. So, you know, what do you do? Well, I'm retired. Well, then you, then you ask, well, what did you do? Yeah. <laughs> what did you do before that? <laughs> that doesn't help me. I still need to make all of these assumptions. Right. I still have sure. to know you. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to do that, but you know, it's, it's you can't help it. No, it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to avoid it. Um, it's hard to avoid it in, in Texas. I get that. You know, that's a question that happens here all the time. I ask it for a completely different reason. Uh, probably also the normal reason. But I ask it because I a lot of people, and we, I, we live in Fort Worth, right? And it's, it's a big city. Um, there are, I'm always offended when people say they haven't heard of Fort Worth. We're the 13th largest city in the country. <laughs> we need some respect. But 
a lot of people, you know, I say, like, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Fort Worth. Okay, what high school did you go to? And they named some high school, you know, 30 miles away. I said, you liar, you fraud. <laughs> You're not from Fort Worth. You're not in the club. But that's just because I'm rude. And, and uh, I'm glad I didn't say that you guys are from Dallas then. Oh, thank you. That's the we would have worst. ended the call, Ryan. That's the most insulting thing you could say. I, I actually saw a speaker get booed one time. He was in Fort Worth. It was it was a booing in, you know, good spirits. But, you know, he said, well, you know, anytime I'm here in Dallas, I talk to And everybody went, whoa. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know if they have that same kind of rivalry between uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, but the, what happens? <laughs> uh, you need a passport to go to St. Paul. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. I like St. Paul just for that. They get overlooked. You know, I feel like I relate to those people a little bit. <laughs> I feel like we have something in common, you know, they're out there. They're probably doing great things. You know, something happens in St. Paul and my newsman's going to say it was Minneapolis. Yeah. just, is disrespecting all those hundreds of thousands <laughs> hardworking men and women. Uh, funny. Well, listen, so Ryan, how how can people get a get in touch with you? I would give you my email, but it's rather long. Uh, so uh, you can find me and all my contact information at thinktoperform.com. That's with a number two in the middle. And uh, go to our About Us page, and you'll see my smiling picture right there okay and where do they uh the podcast is making the ideal real yeah making the ideal real uh which if you are interested in learning more about your values and goals and behavior that's that's what we talk about so it's it's a lot of different angles of the axe as one of my colleagues likes to say Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something. I know I did. If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is decidedly. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Decidedly Podcast. To be notified when new episodes are released, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, drop us a five-star review because it helps more people defeat bad decision-making right alongside you. For show notes, decision-making insights, more episodes, and links to resources mentioned in this episode, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com. If you'd like us to help you make a decision, leave us a message at decidedlypodcast.com slash make my decision for a chance to have your question featured in an upcoming episode. For more decision-making content, check us out on Instagram or Facebook at Decidedly Podcast. As always, thanks for listening. This is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.